Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are talking about Brexit. We're truly sorry about that, but there really there is only so long we could avoid it for. Especially now that it has actually finally happened. But first, we will avoid it uh, by talking about one of the most random trends of this still very, very new year. Sea shanty TikTok. So Emily introduced me to this and I am obsessed. Um, I was raised on a lot of trad folk and I love all this folky stuff and I think it's incredible how well this works on a modern medium. I don't know how many uh, minutes, possibly even hours of my life last week that I actually wasted listening to see Shanty TikTok. Um, for people who aren't in the know, there is a song called Wellerman, and this is the main song that went globally viral last week. Um, in fact, Wellerman's not actually a sea shanty. I am reliably informed that it is a whaling song, which is a different thing to the purists. Anyway... Uh, Scottish postman Nathan Evans uploaded a TikTok of himself singing the song and it became just this global sensation with people all over the world harmonising in and overlaying the track with their own, uh, you know, voices or instruments. And <laughs> as a result, in about the space of 10 days, TikTok is now host to 1.6 billion videos using the hashtag Sea Shanty. And uh, the song is a total earworm which is exactly how shanties are supposed to work. Because yeah, it's been stuck in my head. It's and I... all about the pulling of those oars, right? Um, I don't know why I love it so much. I'm not going to speculate about it because genuinely, I don't think it means anything. I don't think it says anything about where we are in the world right now or like why the sea shanty is the song of the third lockdown. Um, I just really enjoy all the way these random internet moments um, have alleviated like the boredom and the monotony of our online lives at the moment you know it's like the cranberry juice guy who sang Fleetwood Mac back in October or whenever that was oh yeah what's that remember him he was he was like the the big thing before sea shanties anyway uh, I think the funniest thing about it is that at the point at which we are talking about it on this podcast and you're getting like think pieces in all of the weekend papers going, oh, why are sea shanties having an online revival? Or, you know, Jon Snow doing it on Channel 4 News. The moment's actually ended. At the end of this week, everyone's going to be like, I'm sick to death of sea shanty TikTok. But I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great moment. It was so creative. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is kind of, you know, folk songs were invented or like the folk songs traditionally are kind of quite simple songs that don't necessarily after a while people forget who the actual author was and people add to them and they overlay them and they do their own versions which is exactly what people have been doing in a really modern medium on tiktok and i just think that's really cool with all so so with all this overlaying that's been going on there have been a bunch of remix versions and one of them was this kind of rave remix and i really cannot explain to you how badly i want to go to a sea shanty rave when the world is back to normal <laughs> Up 
sounds good, right? So do you want to come? You will find me necking rum and sugar or whatever it is at the bar. Um, yeah, when I was a very painfully uncool 15-year-old, I definitely had a phase where I would unironically wear wine-coloured velvet leggings to parties, um, which I inherited from my mother's Adam and the Ants years. And um, I used to wear them with, like, a big oversized linen shirt, and I thought I was really cool. Uh, it, I was not. But it does sound just perfect for a sea shanty rave. I mean, it does two things there. One, I refuse to believe you've ever been painfully uncool. I just don't think that's true. And uh, two, oh, God, 15-year-old me would have just been, like, oh, like worshipping 15-year-old you, um, I think genuinely but yeah i really i really hope there'll be costumes involved um and i think i'm gonna order a tricorn hat just in case because it has long been my most sincerely held fashion belief that tricorn hats should make a comeback because i i defy you to find someone who doesn't look good in them like they suit everybody and that's just my my little soapbox for the day excellent well we'll we'll make that part of the third sector uniform from now on um anyway so we do in fact actually have a very tenuous link to brexit with this opener because obviously what do sea shanties and brexit have in common rebecca tell me is it proximity to fish it is proximity to fish (laughs) so uh with that let us talk about brexit So, Brexit. This year, the UK received an early Christmas present, a last-minute trade deal with the European Union announced on Christmas Eve, and yes, many people were tempted to ask if the government had kept the receipt. But what will the 1,200-page document mean for the UK voluntary sector, and what do charities need to know about it? I mean, before we even get into that, I want to say something that is just going to wrinkle your brain. It was on the 20th of February 2016 that David Cameron confirmed the date that the referendum on EU membership would take place, which means that we are just now a few weeks out from this being five years or half a decade ago. Yeah, it's been a long it's been a long one. It's been a long five years. On that note, if you think back to when we went into lockdown for the first time back in April last year or March last year, we were technically still in what would have been David Cameron's term as Prime Minister following the 2015 election. I don't think I can even mentally accept that. The fact that we've had three Prime Ministers in the space of a single term is just... It's it's such a lot. I tell you what, Rebecca, I have some I have some organised fun for you. Remember, we were talking about organised fun last week. We're doing it now. Organised fun. Yeah. I have pulled quotes from our three prime ministers who have all job shared across this single term, and I will put it to you: which prime minister said which Brexit related quote? Okay. So the first one, who said, "I'm interested in all these terms that have been identified." Hard Brexit, soft Brexit, black Brexit, white Brexit, grey Brexit. Actually, what we should be looking for is a red, white and blue Brexit. Hmm. That feels like that's got to be Theresa May. That feels like that was a Theresa May kind of thing where she was, she was, yeah, trying to make Brexit patriotic and, and there's some weird waffle in there in the middle. It was Theresa May. You are correct. I think it was Theresa May trying to channel Boris Johnson, which at the time seemed to be, you know, she thought that's what everybody wanted. But I definitely remember like red, white and blue Brexit being splashed all over the headlines and thinking, what does it mean? Okay, my second one, which I also enjoy. I have always believed that we have to confront big decisions, not duck them. Right. This is really embarrassing. Who's the third prime minister? I'm genuinely so confused. (laughs) (laughs) 
Theresa May, Boris Johnson. Are you, are you counting David Cameron? Who, who, who are we talking about? You did actually just name the prime minister. I've forgotten the whole prime minister um, here. You did I? get that right. Oh, it was David Cameron. Okay, we're including David Cameron in this because he did step down fairly briskly after the referendum. Sorry, my brain was just like, have we have we had a whole other prime minister that I have entirely forgotten, despite <laughs> being a journalist and doing news for my job? I've forgotten a prime minister. Okay, we're counting David Cameron. Cool. Marcus, I mean, Marcus Rashford, obviously. Yeah, but... I mean, Marcus Rashford is the prime minister of our hearts. Um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, so uh, uh, that's that's got to be a David Cameron one, right? That he said that and then and then resigned. So, in fact, that is a quote from his resignation speech, which I just I really enjoy for just the sheer oh, irony good, of that. It? You know, I always believed we have to confront big decisions, not duck them. And yet I am going to duck right out of this mess that I have created. Um, we should not duck these decisions, but I'm off. Yes. But I'm also not going to deal with the fallout. And number three was, we have got an oven-ready deal. We've just got to put it in at gas mark four, give it 20 minutes, and Bob's your uncle. I mean, on one level, it's sort of a relief that this is, like, really identifiable. Because I think more than one prime minister who spoke like that would be just beyond irritating. So so this this has got to be Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, it is. But also, you know, I read that and I think, and this is the man we have in charge, like, now. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, so that's a Boris Johnson uh, classic, obviously. I think it maybe took a bit more than 20 minutes to deliver in the end, but I hey. Um, yeah, I mean, and not not a man I would go to for culinary advice anyway, if I'm honest. So I, am I surprised it didn't work out? No. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the one final bonus point, which is the quote, I loved being prime minister. I thought I was doing a reasonable job. That sounds like a David Cameron kind of cocky sort of... Right. You are bang on. It, that's another... Like I can imagine the laugh he'd do after it, it. Yeah, that was another David Cameron one. And I just, I, I, the next time I have kind of imposter syndrome, I'm going to sit down and like have that quote open and just look at that and think, you know, this guy who caused this just economic chaos and then just refused to take accountability did stand up and, and unironically say in a 27 speech i thought i did a reasonable job of that yeah i mean i think i'm going to reserve that for kind of all appraisals and you know work-related meetings from here on in <laughs> Good. um any disciplinary things Excellent. i did a reasonable job in all seriousness i mean i don't know about you but i do feel like the entire exit has been a total damp squib i can't imagine it's the kind of glorious departure that boris johnson had been imagining all the way back in 2016 i mean in fairness like in the last year or so we have had other things to worry about true like it has almost slid off the front pages in a way that i don't think would have been conceivable sort of you know in late 2019 um, but the fact that the arguments at the 11th hour did seem to come down to squabbling about different species of fish just makes it all look rather farcical. Like, I feel like you couldn't write that in a political sort of comedy drama and, and be taken seriously. People would say that's too far. We're arguing about different bits of fish. I mean, the most important thing now is that they are, you know, they're happy fish because they are British fish, which no doubt was right at the top of the priority list for everybody who voted to leave in 2016. No, exactly. Um, And as Chris Walker, policy and public affairs manager at the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, told our news editor Andy Ricketts recently, the deal does provide some welcome certainty, but there's still quite a lot beyond the headlines that we still don't know. So we do have certainty, but we don't know a lot of things within that certainty we have certainty but not total certainty um 
And again, we're, we're not going to give by any means like a definitive guide to what Brexit means for charities, but we have pinpointed a few areas that organisations should be thinking about this coming year. Yeah. And I do think we should probably say at this point, clearly, Emily and I have our views about the relative merits of Brexit in the first place. Um, but to be honest, our thinking with, the, with this episode was that that is kind of beside the point And it's, you know, whether or not you are pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, there are going to be issues that charities are going to have to deal with. We don't know what a lot of those are, and a lot of them are very knotty. So this is kind of an overview of even even if, you know, you believe Brexit is the best thing since sliced bread, there are things that are going to have to be contended with. So that's that's how we're approaching this. Yes, that is our disclaimer. (laughs) Yes. Um, so with that in mind, uh, one of the issues that will have the biggest impact on the voluntary sector is likely to be the end of freedom of movement. Uh, and obviously people aren't moving around much at the moment. Uh, but once we are, it probably is going to be more difficult to recruit. Um, social care charities in particular are likely to be, be hit hard by this as care workers are disproportionately drawn from EU countries. Um, similarly, other charities requiring specialist skills such as research, so medical research charities may struggle. Um uh, so, so, so that's one kind of issue to be looking out for. Um, and what about EU and other European economic area nationals already working at UK-based charity? Hopefully, many of them will have applied for a permanent residence document from the Home Office or have applied for the EU settlement scheme, which includes settled and the pre-settled status. Um, if not, they have until the 30th of June this year to apply to that settlement scheme. Uh, and they can also apply for British citizenship, should the mood take them. Um, and can I just say, as on a personal note, if you are applying for British citizenship, you have my undying sympathy. Um, somebody close to me went through this process a couple of years ago, and it is mind-bendingly torturous. So, yeah, you have my undying sympathy. Um, good luck. Right. Absolutely. So that is a big thing um, for people who have EU or EEA nationals who already live in the UK that's a big thing to think about, you know, make sure that settled status thing is being uh, looked at, I think. Um, Another recruitment point to remember is that we are now also operating under an Australian style points based immigration system for people who want to come and work in the UK from abroad. Now, this kicked in at the beginning of December. So before Brexit, this is what we used to recruit so-called skilled workers from outside the European economic area under what was called a tier two or in some cases a tier five general work visa. So the Tier 2 General Work Visa has now been reimagined as the Skilled Worker Visa, and it includes people from the EEA. This is a pretty significant change for employers recruiting from outside the UK. So in terms of what that means for workers, to qualify for a visa under this new system, uh, migrant workers who want to move and work in the UK have to qualify for 70 points to get their Skilled Worker Visa. So if you have a job offer from an approved employer for a so-called skilled job, that is worth 40 points, 20 for the offer meeting your skill level and another 20 for having sponsorship from your employer. And if you can speak English, that is also worth another 10 points. And a person can then achieve the remaining 20 points that they need if they are going to be paid at least £25,600 a year. So Any charities that want to employ non-UK skilled workers, recruit them from outside the UK. Um, And if these workers do not already have the right to work in the UK, those charities will need to apply for and hold a skilled worker license so they can give that sponsorship to new employees. 
Now, according to the government website, which was last updated in November, um, these sponsorship licenses can take about eight weeks to process, though I have absolutely no idea whether Brexit will have kicked demand up um, for obtaining those. Any charities that used to have one of those tier two sponsor licenses as of the 1st of December will have already have had those automatically converted into the skilled worker license. And if you're an employee and you held a valid two tier work visa on the 1st of December last year, you actually don't need to do anything because that has also been converted into one of those skilled worker visas, as long as you are continuing in the same role for the same employer. I used to do quite a bit of reporting around tier two and tier five general visas when I was working on my last job. Um, And a big problem that organisations would run into with those a lot of the time was that they used to have an annual quota of those visas available. You'd be able to, they, I think the Home Office released maybe 20,000 of them every year. So that always meant that towards the end of every year, you'd have very limited visas left and it would drive up the salaries and uh, similar So the good news is that the quota for the skilled visas has actually been removed. So there's no cap on those visas anymore. And with any luck, that should mean that we will not see pile-ups on a similar level. Um, But what I don't know is whether the fee for obtaining a sponsorship licence has changed. According to the government website, the fee for small or for charitable sponsors under Tier 2 was £536 a year. Um, I wasn't able to find out if that has altered, so that might be worth looking up. It's very important to note that the points-based immigration system does not apply to EU citizens who were already living in the UK on the 31st of December. So they and their family members are eligible to apply to the EU settlement scheme and you will have until 30th of June 2021 to make that application. Yeah, it's not an easy process at all. Um, A lot of paperwork. Yeah, A lot of paperwork. Um, So the picture is also complicated for UK nationals working in other European countries. Um, Fortunately, the law firm Bates Wells has put together a really handy guide which lists the requirements for all of the different EU countries. It explains where workers will need to register or where they may need to apply for a work permit. Uh, So if you go on uh, bateswells.co.uk and click on Insights and then Updates, they'll have these these different guides uh, there on the website. Um, And there there is a really useful kind of going through each country um, in the EU. So moving on from some of the staffing and employee issues uh, thrown up there, one thing it's very easy to forget at the moment with organisations having so much on their plate is that the end of freedom of movement will also have an impact on EU nationals based in the UK who are service users of different charities. There will be people there who haven't applied for settled status, particularly older people, those who aren't in work. They're less likely to be engaged in that process. Um, but often, you know, the only people that will be in contact with them, the only sort of authority that will be in contact with them may well be these charities. Um, so Gareth Morgan is an emeritus professor of charity studies at Sheffield Hallam University. He says there's an estimated 30,000 Italians in the UK who have not applied for settled status. Obviously, that's just one uh, nationality and that's going to be replicated across you know different service users in different from different nationalities so he warns that it really is critical that charities look out for people in their communities who may be unaware of the need to apply or maybe have tried and found it too difficult yeah um i i keep thinking about that and uh, the settled status process has just been it's been a really arduous one for people to apply to and so i just um I think if, if charities are in a position where they can communicate with their service users about this and just say, are you aware, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's a really valuable thing that they, they could be doing, definitely. Um, another thing that charities might start to uh, experience are supply chain issues. 
as a result of Brexit. So we've seen a number of stories in recent weeks about EU-based companies who are saying that they're no longer going to export to the UK because of the additional red tape. So for charities, especially any that have to import things at relatively short notice, might need to be thinking about their supply chains and the possible impact on those. And the same goes for any organisation that produces materials or resources that are sold as supplies, not just in the UK, but also further afield. I think something that might throw up particular problems are um, issues around Northern Ireland, because sending items between Britain and Northern Ireland are going to be caught by the customs declaration process. But at this stage, it's still not entirely clear what organisations can actually do about this. And there could be particular issues for Northern Ireland based organisations um, if some British companies decide it's not worth the effort to sell products to customers there. So it may be that certain goods become more difficult to get hold of. Um, but Gareth Morgan points out that there may be some significant advantages in terms of Northern Ireland still being in the EU single market for goods. So it could actually be quite an attractive place for people to invest. But as Morgan points out, this whole kind of half in, half out situation in Northern Ireland is going to be really difficult. It's almost like they didn't really think about it when they were making all the plans. Sorry, no, I, I've just said I'm not going to get political about this, so I, I'll be quiet. I Yeah, there's a special place in my heart for what the f*** are you doing with the Good Friday Agreement? What is wrong with you people? Again, Lindsay, we're going to have to get a bleep button installed for this episode, I think. <laughs> Listen, it's been 18 months of this. I've managed to do this podcast for this long. Um, that's the first <laughs> real, uh, yeah, real attack of the swears I've had, um, which is, you know, impressive. It's good going. Um, it's good going. I think I'm doing a reasonable job. I think I'm doing a reasonable job. You're doing, job. A, re- <laughs> doing a reasonable job. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, so, moving on from the freedom of movement and import and export issues, um, there was some evidence in last year's Donating Trends report. Obviously, that's a report that third sector producers looking at what's happening with fundraising and and you know, are people giving at certain rates and to certain charities? So in the 2019 report, um, there were some suggestions that Brexit might have affected donations to charity with horizons narrowing and a shift away from overseas interest towards domestic ones. The 2019 report found net drops in giving of 16% for both international and refugee charity sectors. And this continued in the 2020 report, which was taken early in March 2020. So kind of just before lockdown. Um, which found that donations to international charities had dropped by a net 17%, while the human rights and refugee sectors uh, donations had fallen by a net 11%. Really interesting, potentially seeing some of that hostile environment groundwork that uh, was laid all those years ago actually starting to now play out mm. in practice. And just that we are perhaps becoming more fo- more internally focused and less outward looking as a result of this? Um, Well, the deal does make some provision for charities. So it says that there should be a civil society forum set up for consultation about the agreement and any supplementary arrangements that are going to take place between the UK and the EU in this new post-EU world. Um, so in the deal, it suggests that the forum meets at least once a year and that it not only includes like civil society organisations established in both the UK and the EU, but also includes like domestic advisory groups. So your non-governmental organisations, business and employers organisations and trade, trade unions as well. So 
Gareth Morgan, again talking to our news editor Andy Ricketts, pointed out that charities might need to remind the government to ensure this body is up and running and has proper sector representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of says it's just the sort of thing that government could forget about if the charity sector doesn't shout about it. And I have to say, I really agree with that. It's one of those things that could go either way. It could be where everyone gets together and discusses really pressing issues and then the government just ignores them and just says, yes, thank you very much, and nothing happens. It could just be a lip service thing that goes nowhere and never gets developed, or it could be a really useful arena for charities to make their voices and those of their beneficiaries heard. And it all really depends on the governments involved. Um, And, you know, I think it's on charities to do as much as they possibly can uh, to ensure that this does become a a real and viable arena um, for them to communicate. But, yeah... We'll see what happens. I mean, when the forum was first announced, Rita Chadder, who is the chief executive of the Small Charities Coalition, said it was really important that small charities do get included in this. She said it's a real opportunity for the government to stand by smaller charities and also to enable them to play their part in the levelling up agenda. And being local, being close to the ground, we know just how vital they are. Chris Walker, who's the public affairs manager at the NCVO, he warned that while the sector definitely has the expertise to inform this implementation, the extent of how involved the sector will actually, you know, be allowed to be still remains to be seen. So, again, there is something about the government there actually doing that work to give the sector the power to inform these decisions. He said that protections have been written into the deal, but only in the context of trade and investment. So he suggested UK civil society remains vigilant around this. And in January, Jay Kennedy of the DSC said he thought that the civil society forum was a good idea, but he argues it raises more questions than answers. So what Jay Kennedy wanted to know was who runs this forum? How is the membership of this forum determined? How is it governed? And finally, who pays for the secretariat? The crucial question as ever Where's the money for this? Who pays? Um, Where's the money? Who pays? Yeah. So I think I think that could be very accurately described as a cautious welcome, um, maybe a pessimistic welcome uh, from the sector for that. Um, so on top of all this administrative stuff, charities will also have to be vigilant about changes to laws which affect their cause areas. So, for example, around environmental or workplace standards that were previously set by the EU but which the UK government may now be in a position to change. So again, as as Chris Walker was saying, uh, as Emily mentioned just then, there is a non-regression clause in the deal which should offer some pr- protections. But in the long term, charities will need to keep an eye on the protections they want to keep in place. But equally, there may also be an opportunity for the UK government to do things differently. So for example, the tampon tax being abolished. And yes, I appreciate that was more recently bringing in funding for vital women's services but I've, I've i don't from my point of view i've always seen that as a very imperfect fix for something that shouldn't be there in the first place which was tampons being taxed as a luxury item i think it's going to be a really interesting six months um at this stage i don't know about you but for me i'm just like anything anything could happen anything goes um But I do think that, you know, just because everything feels so uncertain at the moment, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be kind of thinking about things and trying to plan for a variety of situations. And I'm I'm sure we will be giving plenty of coverage to what's going to happen in the coming months until we get to the 30th of June, which I think is maybe finally, finally, when we do actually close the doors. It does feel very much like we've spent the last five years kind of going, what will the impact be? 
We don't know. Um, and while there is still a lot that we don't know here, at least there are some things, as you say, that we can start thinking about. It's a different flavour of don't know. It's a more informed don't know. Um, but <laughs> yeah. we know we know what the we know what the questions are now. Perhaps so. Let's just uh, watch this space and wait and see. So each week we are bringing you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we have spotted in the sector. And a massive thank you to everybody who sent us a huge wave of those this week. We really enjoyed them. It was great. Um, But Rebecca, you had to choose one. So what have you got for us this week? Yeah, I would like to start out by echoing that. I kind of beginning of this week, I was thinking I I'm not aware of that many good news stories. It just doesn't feel like that kind of week. Um, so I put out a call on Twitter and the charity Twitterati of the world responded beautifully. And my timeline is now full of lovely, optimistic pick-me-up stories. And if we haven't used your one this week, I will definitely be returning to mine that in future weeks for the podcast. Thank you so much. You've set me up for future weeks beautifully. Um, so this is the one that I, I uh, ended up uh, picking out. Uh, Emily, you strike me as someone who, like me, enjoys a bit of arty crafty fun. Is that fair? I've been known to craft things on occasion. I like to stick bits of dried pasta to cardboard, you know, uh, easels and and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, dried pasta. I haven't done that in years. That'd be amazing. Um, Yeah, very little in the world makes me happier than crafty things. Uh, Give me a bottle of PVA glue, um, some old drink cans, a bit of felt and some glitter, and I am completely content. Um, I've been doing a lot of doodling with pencil crayons recently as a way to unwind during lockdown. It doesn't involve staring at a screen. Um, and it's something about how we stop doing things like drawing. Like as a kid, you're like, oh, I'm just going to draw and it. it doesn't matter that it's good because I am drawing things. And then as an adult, you're like, well, if I'm not an artist, I probably won't won't draw if I'm not doing it as art. Um, yeah. So that's that's been kind of my my lockdown fun. I think it's so nice. Some of the non screen activities that are just becoming more to the front. I've definitely seen a revival of the jigsaw, um, which is lovely because it's and these things are really like meditative. You know, you can just like ease into them and disconnect for a bit and goodness knows we need plenty of opportunities to be doing that yes indeed um so anyway two volunteers for cathod which is the uh catholic overseas development charity um these two volunteers uh bronner daly in leeds and maggie mcwilliams in truro in cornwall have set up these monthly live facebook sessions called crafting joy with cathod and it's a monthly facebook live which mums and dads can follow with their children to keep them entertained during lockdown they describe the video series as a monthly crafting show with a sprinkle of parenting chat and social justice craftism, which I think sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and I just love this because back at the beginning of the pandemic, one thing a lot of fundraising experts and others were telling me is that charities were going to have to look after their donors in some sense here, going to have to be reaching out, making it clear that they were there for them, engaging with them and offering them things and, and, and a level of support that they wouldn't normally Um, And I kind of, to be honest, I was a bit puzzled about what that might necessarily mean. And this just seems like a really lovely example of a charity engaging with supporters in a way that seems like a bit of a curveball, but is offering them something that is useful and joy filled at a time when there isn't a huge amount of that going round. And it's still giving them a chance to chat and connect with the values that have brought them into contact with the charity in the first place. So I think that's really lovely. Um, The previous episodes of the show are available on the Cafford in Leeds Facebook page uh, and the next one is due to take place the week after next. So if you've got kids who need entertaining or let's face it, just fancy doing some of that crafty stuff yourself, 
I would highly recommend checking it out. I will be there. I'm going to get my glitter glue and my cardboard and all the rest of it. And I will be joining in. So, yeah, I think that sounds brilliant. So a big shout out there to Cafod. Um, we look forward to crafting with you soon. Yes, indeed. And yeah, as I say, look forward to sharing some of the other amazing good news stories we've had this week on future episodes of the podcast. So we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. So we will see you next week. <laughs>